0: If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. As Paul mentioned, uh, we're finishing up, sort of, a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, In the end, it'll be six messages. This is the third of three uh, as we lead into the summer. And then, Lord willing, we'll finish up the latter half of the sermon before the fall. This morning, we're reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Father, your heavenly Father, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are a God who saves, and we thank you that you have indeed revealed your glory to us in the gospel and in your Son. We pray, Father, that as we look at these words of yours today, the words of Christ, that we uh, would be shaped by them to give you the glory that you deserve. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Reward offered. This is how many people or organizations seek to recruit help from others for various reasons. Even yesterday, A a reward of $20,000 was offered just to get information about some people that may have been involved in a couple of dolphins that died in Texas and Florida. Rewards are a common form of motivation that we all respond to and we all use. We may offer rewards to our kids for doing extra well on their schoolwork or on their chores, or we work a little bit harder... Uh, for an employer who offers some kind of bonus or incentive for the extra work that might bring some extra income. Sadly, our concept of reward has been corrupted by sin, and we either seek to get the wrong reward, or we are motivated by the wrong rewards. Jesus addresses the issue of rewards and motivation in his Sermon on the Mount. And specifically, Jesus addresses the motivations behind why we do acts of righteousness. In this passage that we just read, he warns about seeking the wrong rewards and where we should seek everlasting reward. The main idea I want to put before you this morning is this. Jesus brings you to the Father, to your Heavenly Father, so that you would find your reward in him. Jesus brings you to the Father so that we would find our reward in him. And since we will only find our greatest reward in God himself, there's three places that we need to look. The first place we need to look is be looking out for our own pride. The second place is we need to be looking to God in prayer. And third, we need to be looking to God as our reward himself. So first, we must be on the lookout for pride, because pride keeps us from the Father's reward. We need to be on the lookout for pride, because pride keeps us from the Father's reward. When we pick up here in chapter 6, with Jesus beginning the section by continuing to speak of righteousness, back in Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The whole Sermon on the Mount is addressing what this greater righteousness is. And last week, we took a look at how greater righteousness works itself out in the law as found in the heart. The heart of righteousness only comes through the new birth. That's what we experience when we exercise our faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. Jesus, in this section, continues that theme of righteousness and the heart. But here he first tells us to be... On the lookout to beware. Beware, he says, of practicing your righteousness. Now, if the sentence ended there, we might think that we ought not to do righteousness. After all, Jesus got done explaining that just keeping the external law was insufficient to enter the kingdom of heaven. But he doesn't stop there. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, let's say he stopped there for just a second. Okay, so Jesus is telling us that we just do our private devotions or whatever and go on about our day. But if we think back or look back, in Matthew five sixteen, Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' desire is that our good works be visible. We're to shine as lights before the world, but we're warned of practicing that righteousness in order to be seen by them for our glory. When we do, when we seek to do our righteousness before others for our glory, we will have received our reward, and we will not have a reward waiting for us. This verse in Matthew 6-1 sets the theme for the entire section uh, this morning. There's a call to practice your righteousness. That still remains. The practice of righteousness before others remains the same. But the issue is, what's your motivation? Where are you seeking your reward? This reward is the core of the issue. It's not that we're not to seek reward at all. Jesus promises rewards to those who are persecuted because of him, in the last beatitude, Matthew five twelve, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus promises rewards to his disciples. In Matthew 10, 41 and 42, he says, The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So no, the issue is not that we shouldn't be seeking rewards. Rather, it's a matter of from whom that reward is sought. When we seek reward from others for ourselves, that is a matter of pride. Jesus gives three examples of doing righteousness in Matthew chapter 6. First in Matthew 6 two, Jesus says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Why? So that they may be praised by others. The almsgiving of the hypocrites was motivated by a desire for God, not by a desire for God to be glorified. It was likely motivated by um, just their own praise. They weren't interested in the poor. They weren't interested in God's glory. They were interested in men's praise. He says, similarly in Matthew 6, 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, that they may be seen by others. And the issue is not that prayer only needs to be a private thing. Public and corporate prayer was very common. It was even prescribed in some instances. The issue is that the prayer of the hypocrite is motivated by having recognition From others. They want to impress people with their deep theological thoughts. They want to impress their crowds with their eloquence and their reverence. And the third example Jesus gives of fasting when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Again, the issue is their motivation. The hypocrite goes out of his way to make it known that he's fasting that he's praying, that he's giving. He puts on a hungry face to make a show of how deeply he's suffering for God. What does Jesus promise these hypocrites? Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What we need to keep in mind is that this is all a form of pride. And how do we detect pride? Well, what does it look like? There's plenty of clues in our text here to help us sort some of this out. There's three markers of pride uh, in this section that we can identify. The first one is fear of man. We mentioned that earlier with reading from Samuel. The fact that they do these things to be seen by others is because they fear man. Saul had decided he was going to offer a sacrifice from the best of the flocks. They had seized these flocks and the spoils, Samuel confronted him about his lack of obedience by sparing the king and the spoil, and he confessed that he feared the people. When it comes to religious duty, Saul was apparently under great pressure, either directly or indirectly, to offer sacrifice to God because of their victory. The narrator doesn't correct Saul's claim that he feared the people. Saul sinned. By practicing righteousness, he was doing something that was prescribed by the law in sacrifice because he feared the people. He did something that he was told not to do specifically. It wasn't his role, but he did something that we would see in the Bible. It's been said that we fear because we love. The worst form of this is in when we love ourselves and do whatever it takes to protect ourselves. That's what Saul was doing. That's what we do every time we practice our righteousness in order to impress someone else. In the case of how this relates to Matthew 6, Jesus warns against acting like the hypocrites who do what they do because of other people. Jesus is likely referring to the scribes and Pharisees. They fear the people because they love the praise of other people. And then this is where the second marker of pride comes in. It's an, an allure for present reward. Again, motivation for reward is not the problem. It's where or from whom that reward is coming from. When we seek reward from others, it's because we think quite highly of ourselves, and we want others to think highly of ourselves as well. And when we get the reward from others, we confirm to ourselves that our thinking about ourselves is right. This is the praise of men that the hypocrites seek in Matthew 6.2. In most cases, the reward is a fleeting reward. It's about as fleeting in time as it takes to to impress those people. People are impressed, they move on. In some cases, the fame may glow for a little while, but before you know it, something bigger and better is coming along that's, that's robbing you of your glory. Material gain also sometimes is the reward sought. Scribes and Pharisees likely receive donations from people. It's a really strange phenomenon to me that the t- today's prosperity preachers have so many people throwing money at them. But they've received their reward. Even though they have their luxury jets or anything else that they might want, they've received their reward. The third mark of pride is selfish ambition. It's a desire for praise. It's love for attention. It's a desire to be recognized They're looking to get ahead and stay ahead by impressing the locals. And their attitude, their motivation is, my kingdom come, my will be done. Now, we all face the problem of pride. We all face the problem of the fear of man because we're in front of everyone every day. We want to impress people. We don't have much public almsgiving. We don't have many fasting practices in our culture. So what do you think of when you're practicing your righteousness? Well, many of us will think of spiritual disciplines, Bible reading, praying, evangelism, journaling, serving, worship. These are all good things to do. We should be reading and meditating on scripture. We should be, should be using our gifts to serve the church. But I just want to ask you one question. Are you doing what you're doing for the glory of God or for the praise of people? Or are you making public the things that ought to be private. I don't mean to, actually I do mean to pick on social media a little bit, but I'm picturing in my head, you know, a nice cup of coffee, sunlight coming in through the window, Bible laid open, journal, pen, and a little time stamp and somebody's name at the top of that. Now, there are lots of worse things to see on social media, and those things can actually be encouraging for other people. But the question behind it sometimes just needs to be asked, why are you putting this up there? Is it just because you want people to think you're a spiritual person? They're just good questions to evaluate. We need to evaluate our motives. We need to evaluate why we take action on the things that we do and whether or not those things are motivated by pride. That's the first point. We need to be on the lookout Our pride. The second is that we need to look to God in prayer. We need to look to God in prayer so that we can find our reward from our Father. We must look to God in prayer so that we can find our reward from our God who is our Father. Prayer is central to battling pride and to seeking our eternal reward. I'd like to point out a little literary feature here. The Sermon on the Mount has three major sections it's got an intro. It's got a body. It's got a conclusion. We're in the middle of the body of the sermon with this whole section of chapter 6, and the Lord's Prayer is in the middle of the middle of that section. And the reason this is significant is because in Jewish thought and writing, an author would often put something in the middle to emphasize its importance, to make it point out that it's the main idea. It's kind of like the spine of a book, although That's probably a bad analogy because we don't pay much attention to the spine of a book. But you get my point. What's in the center is what's holding it all together, like the spine. And that's Matthew's intention here. He's drawing our attention to the middle. It takes up a lot of space. Another feature that stands out is that Matthew mentions prayer four times compared to giving and fasting, which he mentions two times. Giving and fasting, you know, we see, do it this way, Don't do it this way, do it this way. And he says that on two occasions, right back to back with prayer. Verses 5, 6, 7, and 9, when you pray, or in your praying, prayer is central, both in our text and in our thought, and it's important. But what does Jesus emphasize? We've already noted that prayer is not to be done for the sake of impressing others, because God is our intended audience. The secret to success, the secret to finding reward from the Father, like uh, giving and fasting, is to do it in secret. Secret, what does that mean? Well, maybe in such a way, whether you're seen by others or not, that it's motivated by God and his glory. The second caution about the wrong kind of prayer is in verse 7. Jesus says not to heap up empty phrases. Other translations help get the idea of the sense of this. Some say meaningless repetition. Some say babbling. The word means to stammer, to say the same thing again and again, often without thinking. Commentators often refer to a story in First Kings 18. That's the story of where Elijah has a confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and they both set up an altar and he says, "The Lord, who, or the the God who answers by fire, that's the Lord." So he encourages these prophets of Baal to call upon Baal to to bring down fire to to take up the sacrifice, and they pray from morning until noon. And then Elijah mocks them, saying, "Well, cry louder, maybe he's asleep or he's on a journey." And they keep on even cutting themselves until the evening, and at sunset, the time of the oblation in a, in First a, in Kings. Elijah prays a simple prayer. He's not full of words as the, the Baal worshipers were. And God answers that prayer by bringing the fire down and licking up the whole sacrifice, as it were. Stones, altar, water, and all. The idea is that God was made to be known as God. That was Isaiah's or Elijah's prayer. That's essentially the nature of this prayer as well. The point of verses 7 and 8, though, is to remind us that God knows and God hears. It also reminds us, as does the rest of the teaching on prayer, that we should be mindful and purposeful about what we pray for, not babbling on and vainly repeating ourselves. Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And he he isn't telling them, repeat these words every day. It's a model or a framework or a guide to orient our hearts, to seek the things that we ought to seek. And what we need to keep in mind is the purpose behind this instruction. The setting of this prayer is right in the middle of of the warnings and cautions about doing righteousness before others, to be seen by them for their glory for you. This model or pattern of prayer has three concerns, three concerns that are a remedy to our prideful service. And the first concern of the prayer has to do with our approach to God. As you can see in verse 9, the opening of the prayer in in this verse is where Jesus points his disciples to God's fatherhood, how we address God. Jesus referred to God as Father, specifically as your Father, eight times so far in this sermon. When Jesus refers to God as Father, especially as his Father and his disciples' Father, He is introducing something that's pretty new to Jewish thought about who God is. Jesus is only referenced as Father a handful of times in the Old Testament. And each time, Father is used in a way that's kind of analogous rather than direct address. Um, His fatherhood is equated to his creating um, mankind. Isaiah and Jeremiah may be the exception to that. But even with this, even with them, They're equating his fatherhood in his redeemer role and not necessarily relational as as Jesus is presenting it here. Jesus is using it with a very familial purpose. He wants his disciples to understand and embrace the family relationship that God is bringing them into. Our relation to God through Jesus is one of adoption. And the new covenant work of Christ secures us into his family. Paul writes in Romans eight fifteen and 16, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit whom he gives us, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. At the same time, Jesus reminds us of the Father's transcendence with the, and his holiness with the words, Who is in heaven? This phrase, who is in heaven, is really unique to Matthew. He uses it 21 times in the whole gospel. God is our heavenly father. This is how we can think about addressing God. The first petition, then, that we give to our heavenly father, the one who's adopted us, is hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is just the verb form of saying holy, you know, be holified. We pray for God's name to be holy. God's name is who he hit, who He is. It's how He identifies himself. Moses set the pattern for us understanding that God is who He says He is, with His name in Exodus 33 and 34. He has to see His glory. God says, "I'm going to tell you who I am." God already is, He always will be holy. This is a prayer that He be treated as holy, with us and with by the world. These opening petitions teach us about the right fear of God. And when I say the right fear of God, I want you to be aware of the distinction between the fear of God that drives sinners away and having a fear of God that draws us in. Psalm 211 speaks of the fear that draws us in because of his grace. Serve the Lord with fear, not afraid rejoicing with trembling. The idea is, That the fear of God draws people to him is seen in Jeremiah 32, verse 40. This is what he says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. In other words, I'm going to put the fear of of me in them so that they will come to me because of my goodness. It's a fear that's equated with a love for God. Psalm 145, verses 19 and 20 says, He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. What's, what needs to be noted in that passage is that those who fear him and those who love him are parallel statements. It's a positive and loving fear because of God's goodness. Again, Jeremiah 33, 9 says, When he's describing what his people to expect in the new covenant blessings, he says, they shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Our self-serving pride that motivates us to serve, to be seen by others, is beaten down when we consider who God is and who he is to us. A pastor and author named Michael Reeves wrote a book called, What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord?, He does a great job of explaining this. I would recommend that to you. I'll send you uh, that this afternoon. Verse 10 has the next two petitions that direct us to seek his kingdom. We see the words, your kingdom come. Jesus, or just as God is already holy, he is already king. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the father where he reigns. Waiting for the moment of his return, his kingdom will be established on earth. Yet we see from the rest of the world as though uh, we live as our own kings. We as his people, though, recognize that that's not the way it should be. So this part of the prayer reflects what the Jews were already longing for. They were expecting Messiah to come and restore the kingdom. But Matthew and the rest of the New Testament teaches us that it's not going to quite be as expected. But to pray for the kingdom... To come is to continue to look ahead to the day in which Jesus will return and set up his throne in which righteousness will dwell. We also pray for God's will to be done. Along the same lines as longing for God's kingdom, we want God's will to be done. We we want the conditions that are present in heaven to be present on earth. We long for his will to be accomplished on earth. We pray for his eternal decrees of bringing about righteousness, but we also pray for his moral will to be completed as people come to to understand their sin and repent and follow him. We also pray that his will is accomplished through us as obedient servants. Our selfish motives, our desire for praise from men, is all dulled when we train our hearts away from our selfishness by these heavenly conditions. The second concern for the prayer is to teach us dependence on God, and our dependence also helps us fight off pride. All of the petitions of dependence are interwoven in such a way that's distinct with ands in verses 12 and 13. All of this goes together. The first one, we ask God for our daily provisions or our needs to be met. Now, this is likely the least felt problem that we experience, especially in our Western culture that's full of wealth. Even if we have poverty, we face multitudes of options to have our needs met. And we've trained ourselves to be self-sufficient. When self-sufficiency isn't enough, we rely on the generosity of others or government assistance, But most of the days, our refrigerators and cupboards are stocked. Many of us could go many days, if not weeks, without having to go to the grocery store if we really needed to. And these conditions kind of dulled our our perception for the need for God and his providence. The Matthews hearers were in a pre-industrial agricultural society where a day's work meant a day's worth of food for many people. They also had to worry about rodents or mildew, destroying what supplies they may have been able to keep. And if anybody had to work, one day's sickness could have been detrimental to the needs of them and their families. The truth is, is that God is the one who provides us with everything. He gives us the ability to work. He gives us the ability to earn. And that's what we need to be continually praying to him for and fight off that self-sufficiency mindset. In, a day, in addition for the need for daily food, we need daily forgiveness. Now, Jesus uses the term debts here. Though the idea of sin and transgression and trespasses and debts in relation to God often have a large overlap of just talking about sins, I don't think we should o- overlook the choice of words that Jesus or Matthew uses here. Debt in relation to God should be understood not just as crossing the line of going too far. But of not giving to God what is due to him. In the context of this chapter, what is due to God is praise and glory, worship and service that's done for his attention, his glory. So, in this sense, the debt that we're asking for forgiveness for is an affront to God that comes from seeking the reward for ourselves. It's doing righteousness for the sake of my praise. The glory that's due to God is indebted to him. And we have come to owe a debt. That's what we're asking for forgiveness for. Jesus includes a statement as we also forgive our debtors. With this phrase, Jesus reminds us of the internal righteousness that's expected of his disciples. We have no room to believe that God has forgiven us when we withhold forgiveness from others. Jesus elaborates on this in verses 14 and 15. And the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 also makes this clear. The point of this section, then, is to acknowledge our need for forgiveness for seeking to rob God of his glory. And instead of doing good works for our own praise, we want to do our good works for God to be praised. But we've done the opposite. Now, this is not a desperate plea from which we have no hope asking God to forgive us. It's a prayer that's filled with confidence because we're his children. It's a welcome invitation. It's an invitation he gave to his disciples when he told them, repent and follow me. The third and final concern of the prayer is found in the petition for the two kinds of protection. The first part of the petition may be a little confusing. Jesus instructs his disciples to pray to the Father to not lead them into temptation. Well, what does this mean? Well, for one, it doesn't mean that God tempts us with evil. James 1 teaches us very clearly that God tempts no one. In James 1, 2, God, James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. And the word translated as trial has the same root as the word for temptation or being tempted in James 1, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Then James states very clearly where temptation comes from in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So in a trial, temptation seems to come up most fiercely. Jesus' disciples recognize that God is sovereign. Whatever he wills comes to pass. They know that God is sovereign over the evil works of men, as well as over the disastrous circumstances that happen in our lives. They may have been thinking of Jacob's younger son, uh, Joseph, his favorite son, in Genesis fifty twenty, when Joseph said, as for you, when he's speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What's important to keep in mind, what this teaches us, what, what Joseph understands to be true is that God did not turn evil actions of his brothers into good, but he meant it for good. The difference there is that he didn't flip something around. He used an evil event to bring about good. And we see the same thing with Jesus' crucifixion. The most evil event that could have happened on the planet, God meant it for good. Joseph's, Joseph's temptations proved to be a trial that not only tempted him, like we saw, we we could see with uh, his uh, being harassed by Pharaoh or Potiphar's wife, uh, but it refined him as well. Jesus instructs his disciples to pray then. He's instructed them to pray that their father would not put them in situations that would be hard for them, but they must also understand that those trials are a means of testing them. And in this vein, he instructs them for protection from evil, deliverance from evil. This could be translated as deliverance from the evil one, but I, I think, even though that's footnoted, I think in the context what he's talking about is evil conditions and the temptations that come along with that because we know that we're weak. So it's a prayer for deliverance, not only from a bad situation, but from ourselves. Now, Jesus' little excursus on prayer here primarily focuses on how to pray in contrast to the babbling of the pagans. It's specific, it's directed, it's also clearly framed in a corporate way with the us's and we's and ours. So how does this fit with verse 6, to go into a private room and shut the door? Or spreading out our vision of this passage to other examples, how does one be charitably to others without being seen? Somebody knows. Somebody knows when you give. How do you fast, especially if you're At home, and somebody notices that you're not eating your dinner. The point of these examples is how they are related to the command to to love God and neighbor, I believe. Jesus gives a neighbor-loving example first, giving to those in need. This is what the church began to do in the beginning of Acts. None of it seemed very private as we read the narrative in Acts. It was the publicity of it all that seemed to be under the motives of Ananias and his wife Sapphira, who gave generously. The text there indicates that God struck them dead because they lied regarding the extent of the gift. But why did they lie? To be seen as generous by others perhaps? I don't think that's far from from the from the thought, the thought there. Would they have followed through on presenting their gift, saying this is all we have from this property, if they had stopped and prayed for God's name to be hallowed and not their own? The point of that illustration is to show that our motivations behind doing our righteousness needs to be checked. It needs to be guarded. And we do that through prayer. Prayer is a spiritual discipline that's very difficult for us. Sometimes we feel very inadequate in it. And maybe that's just because we don't understand it. Maybe it's because that even as we pray, we're thinking of ourselves. Sometimes we find ourselves praying or we go to Pray, and we sit down, we set aside time, and when we get there, it's become a chore, or it's become full of distraction. Jesus instructs us to pray in such a way that we would find our reward in heaven. The distractions come because we're also already thinking of something outside of who God is. It just takes discipline. And if I could offer you any advice, follow Jesus's advice. I grew up going to Roman Catholic Church. We said the Lord's Prayer every day. But it was more, little more than babbling like the Gentiles, piling up empty phrases. So I don't want you to just go and repeat this prayer, but use it as a guide. Think through it. Give some time to the thought that Jesus is your Father. Give some time to the thought that he's your father in heaven and that he is sovereign, that he is looking after your needs, that he wants to answer your prayers as you seek his glory. So Jesus teaches his disciples in this section that they need to seek their reward from their father. Jesus warns against pridefully seeking glory from people. And Jesus teaches his disciple the importance of prayer in making our Father's concern our concern. Now we'll see the, how Jesus points to God himself as our reward. Jesus points to God himself as our reward, so we must look to God as our reward. Matthew six nineteen to 21 Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal." For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, you may have noticed, especially if you have an ESV Bible or an NIV, that this section has a new heading that the translators have put in to kind of separate it from the previous section. The New American Standard treats this a little bit differently. They they have a heading that is at 616 that runs through 24. And the, well, what I want you to see is the connection that's going on here between Uh, 1 through 18 and 19 through 21. We have the theme of reward and then transitioning into the idea of treasure, which are not that far separated. And Matthew also gives a textual clue that's pretty much hard to see in English. But I just want to point out that when Jesus writes about the hypocrites, that they disfigure their faces in 6.16, disfigure when they fast, is the same word that he uses when he writes that your, um, or things are, moth and rust destroy. So destroy and disfigure are actually the same, same verb. So Matthew's making that connection. He's making it thematically with reward and treasure, and he's making it uh, with that word word connection there. The issue we've been looking at so far is where we seek our reward. Three times we have say, we have seen the phrase, they've seen their reward. They've received it. Now in, Jesus, now in 619, Jesus is speaking about treasures on earth that are temporary, and he warns his disciples against laying up these treasures on earth. Instead, we're to lay up our treasures in heaven. The last time Jesus mentioned anything about heaven, he was speaking about our Father who is in heaven. Our treasure is to be our Father. Our treasure is to be in heaven where he's at. The point, just like all along, is where, or from whom, where we find our reward. The point takes a little turn here, from where we find it to what it is. Jesus says, where our treasure is, there our heart is. And he is pointed to one key idea, and that's devotion. The things that are most treasured by us are what occupy our heart. John Calvin wrote, If honor is rated the highest good, then ambition must take complete charge of a man. If money, then forthwith greed takes over the kingdom. If pleasure, then men will certainly degenerate into sheer self-indulgence. That's pretty insightful. Whatever the heart delights in ends up controlling and directing that person. The Father gives himself to us as a treasure. So that he would direct and motivate our hearts to give full devotion to him. So that when we do our righteousness, it will be for his glory and his reward. And ultimately, we'll find our greatest pleasure in that. We don't have to stop storing up treasure. We don't have to stop filling our bank accounts uh, for a rainy day. But we do need to make sure that we're not doing anything for the praise of men or for our own glory and security outside of God. Riches and honor isn't a problem. Whatever we have, we should be thankful for. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The issue, again, is where we have set our hope for our reward. We do good. We are rich in good works, looking out for the reward that the Father will bring to us. The biggest issue is, the most important thing we need to address is whether God is indeed your treasure. Some of you sitting here today know nothing of this. God has not been your treasure. You have lived your whole life looking out for number one, and that number one is you. You may have been successful. You may have many friends. You may be generous and really kind and really fun to be around. But your life is not about you. As we heard with our readings earlier today, we were created for God. We were created for his glory. You were created to bring God praise, and instead, your heart has possibly sought its own praise. Your reward is for this life only, if that's all you've sought, and God will judge you for this. But God is not so unmerciful as to not invite you to find forgiveness in him. As we just saw in the Lord's Prayer, God gives himself to us as a father, He invites you to seek his kingdom and his righteousness and his forgiveness. And this is only true to find him as father, to find him as a reward as we place our faith, as you place your faith in his son who died for your sin and who was raised for your justification. For those of us who are already his, do you remind yourself of the reward you have in God himself? Paul tells the church in Colossae that he is praying for them in this way. He says in Colossians 1.27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He wants them to grow in their understanding of the riches of Christ, where he says in Colossians 2.3 about Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I can't say it better than Paul in Colossians 3, one and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. God has made himself known to you in Christ. He is your father in Christ. And he is your reward. So seek him. Seek his glory by growing in your knowledge of him. And as you know him more, you will serve him more and treasure him more. Jesus brought you to the Father so that you would find your reward in him. Since God is our Father and our reward, we must look out for the pride that keeps us from serving him. We need to be looking to God in prayer, seeing how he directs us to direct our hearts, and we need to look to God himself as our greatest treasure and greatest reward. Let's pray. Father, you indeed are great. You're holy. And in your heavenly rule, you reign over all and you give good gifts all day long to us. We pray, Father, that we would be shaped by who you are, by what you call us to be, that you would guard us against pride And seeking glory and praise from men. Because you deserve all glory. We want to give you that glory now. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.